We continue our Radically Candid Conversation series with Deborah Spar, current Senior Associate Dean of Harvard Business School Online and former president of Barnard College. She's the author of Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Deb, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. It is such a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start with a terrible thing to ask a writer, and I feel your pain when I ask you this question. But tell me about your book. Uh, I always, when, when somebody asks me that, I always want to answer, just go read the damn book. But I would love for our readers to hear, who haven't read your book, to be inspired to do so. Well, thank you. And I, I do hope that they will, they will go out and read it. But, but I'll give you kind of the, the overview. I mean, it's a really big book. It starts in the year 8000 BC and goes all the way up to the present and into the future, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of tell this long arc of history story about all the ways in which technology has shaped and will continue to shape our most personal and intimate lives. I'm trying to bring two worlds together, the worlds of technology and the worlds of gender. So usually when people think about technology, at the risk of making you know, generalizations here, but technology is kind of masculine and it's, it's big and it's bulky and it's very tangible. And, and most of the work on technology tends to be written by men. Not mm-hmm. all, but, but yeah. most of it. There's this other whole world of literature that's about gender and sexuality and romance and babies and love. And that literature is overwhelmingly written by and for women. And because I've sort of lived in both of these worlds in weird ways, I wanted to bring those literatures together and make the argument, which I passionately believe is true, that if technology shapes the way we form our families and have love and have sex and fall in love, then we need to be thinking about it and to some extent worrying about it because we want to watch technology's arc and its trajectory rather than just sort of waking up one morning and say, huh, this is how we've been changed. Yes, absolutely. Let me draw an even closer tie to what all this has to do with radical candor. Because a lot of our listeners ask different versions of the same question, which is how can we show that we care personally at work? And I think that an awful lot of how we show we care personally at work has to do with how we interact with each other about some of our most intimate details in our lives. Like, when do we bring that into work? When do we not bring that into work? How can we show we care personally about the way people are building families today when we don't even understand often how people are approaching family? In fact, recently there was uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about IVF. And should we talk about IVF at work? Should we not talk about IVF at work? And I confess that I went right up to the edge of oversharing about IVF. My twins were born thanks to IVF, in vitro fertilization, for those of you who don't know. And I was giving a talk to about 5,000 of my colleagues, and I announced that I was uh, that I was going through IVF. And this was a controversial decision. Some people were like, we really didn't want to know that, Kim. But in fact, it was a real moment to get to know a lot of my colleagues. I had a number of people come talk to me, most men and women, about their struggles to start families. So I think the more we can talk about this stuff at work, the better. I think you're exactly right. And look, it's a fine line and it's evolving line because when Mm -hmm. we're in work, when we're doing our jobs, you know, we're, we're not fully immersed in our personal lives. And I think maintaining that distinction is really important. By the same token, the people we are in the workplace are who we are 
And when we're in the workplace, we bring our marital squabbles and our dating problems and our children and our sleepless nights. Those are the things that shape who we are. And I don't think you can build a team or any kind of a comfortable learning environment unless everybody is at least aware of what's going on in everyone else's life. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, in, in, in my personal life, putting the book aside, you know, I was for a long time one of the very few women at Harvard Business School on the yes. faculty. Yeah. And I was yeah. very involved in, in hiring. And it suddenly became clear to me that I knew for every single candidate, male or female, whether they had kids, whether mm-hmm. they were married, whether they were planning to have kids, and they just volunteered that information. And they didn't volunteer it to any of my male colleagues. Right. And I realized in part, it was because I had my baby, my kids' baby pictures all over my office. So right. somehow that kind of normalized the conversation of saying, okay, here we can talk about the family stuff, which quite frankly was also, was often critical in terms of whether or not we'd hire this person. Cause they actually wanted to know, can I have a baby here? I'm yeah. gay. Am I going to feel awkward if I bring my same sex partner with me? And so I think just legitimizing those conversations, it not only makes for, you know, more comfortable and fun workplace, you can hire people better. Yeah. Yeah. They know they're going to be welcome. Yeah. And that they have, you know, that they can talk about these things, even if they're not talking about it, you know, all the time. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out for all the people who decide not to have kids. I did not get married until I was almost 40. And so I, for for about five years, assumed I would never have kids. And I think that's uh, a decision that is is hard to make. And it, it, I also found very often that my colleagues at work were insisting on work-life balance because they had all these obligations for kids. And I'm like, but there's stuff I want to do too outside of work. I always remember one of, one of my, actually, she was a former board member of mine. She was a single woman, you know, of mm-hmm. a certain age. Mm-hmm. And she was railing against the fact that, you know, every time somebody, like a parent at work, needed to go to ballet practice or soccer games or whatever. She right. got stuck yes. doing all of, all of the extra work. And she said, how come it's okay for them to take time off or you know, go home for a soccer game, but I can't take time off to go to the bar? And if yeah. I don't take time off to go to the bar, I'm never going to be in a position to go to the soccer game. So I think you're completely right. I mean, and one of the things that I really argue for, both in, in this book and in, in my last book, Wonder Women, is that For women and for people, we need to have and to validate choice. Choice isn't just reproductive choice. Choice is, do I want to get married? Do I want to have kids? Do I want to take care of my elderly parents? And as we've moved away from having sort of a one-size-fits-all, leave-it-to-beaver family, we need to validate all these different kinds of choices. And choosing not to have kids is a perfectly valid choice. And so absolutely, we, the more different variants of families we have, the better off I quite frankly think we all are. Yes, I totally agree. Uh, there, there are a lot of ways to find meaning in life and children are not, certainly not the, not the only one. Uh, I'm saying this conscious that nobody on my team except me has kids. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're open. One of the things I think, one of the, the myths in our world is that having children will make it more difficult for you to do great work. And I think that's part of the reason why I put off uh, having kids for so long. And the fact of the, and I'm glad, by the way, I put it off for a long time. One of the things I often talk about is don't submit to fertility panic if you're a young woman. Don't feel like you must get it done now. But I think that 
One of the things that I found that surprised me and shouldn't have is that I did the best work of my career after I had kids, despite all the difficulties, despite the fact that it was hard, maybe because it was hard. For me, it had a way of focusing on, focusing me on what was, what was important and what was not important. I was able to let go of a lot of things that previously had seemed like I had to do. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, you know, we're learning so much, so painfully, and going through COVID right now. Yeah, I think one of the things we're finding out, and certainly I'm seeing in, in my circle, which I'm sure like yours is mostly composed of pretty busy people, is that most of us are more productive when we have structure in our lives. Yeah. You know, when we're faced with these 24-hour days and we don't have to really get dressed up and, you know, there's nowhere to go, I'm finding a lot of people saying that they're becoming less productive. So I think, you know, the way I look at, at this proverbial juggling is like, yeah, it's hard. If you want to have a romantic life and a family life and kids and an exciting job, it's going to be really hard, but it's fun and you kind of, and it's fulfilling and you just kind of have to go with it. And I I remember early, early in my uh, career, when I was like little kids and trying to get tenure, going to one of the grand old men of Harvard and saying, so when does it get easier? And he looked down at me with scorn and he said, when you die. (laughs) which was was really sort of grounding because it's not supposed to be easy. And 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 just to underscore, Kim, the point you made earlier, you and I, and I'm sure most people listening to this, we have so much privilege. You know, the ones who really have it hard are the single parents with minimum wage and kids who are sick. Those of us who are lucky enough to have healthy kids and support systems and well-paying, exciting jobs. Yeah, it's exhausting, but you know, it's also, it's also exhilarating. Yes. Just kind of embrace that. Yeah. Well, I found there was a a huge chunk of time in my career where, where I was, uh, as one friend put it, Kim, you've already gotten on the mommy track and you're not even dating anyone. So I had, I had left my high power job and I was writing a book and I was single and living alone And that is also hard. I mean, and I remember feeling at the time sort of sad about the the state of my life and talking to a friend of mine who was married who said, marriage is also hard. Like, it's all hard. It's all hard. And the question is, how do we find meaning in it? And how do we support our colleagues through this, especially right now where we're all in such the, the differences in our respective situations seem starker than ever since we're all meeting with each other, sitting in each other's living rooms, really. Yes. Not, and, and, not in a common space. Right. And that's one of the things I'm sure you're seeing it in the workplace. We're also seeing it in higher education. Because when you're, you know, when you're on a college or a university campus, everybody kind of looks the same. You know, yeah. they're in the same hoodies and sweatpants or what have you, eating the same food and everyone's living in the same dorm rooms. Uh, once people are Zooming in from home, you really see... The differences. The differences in sharp relief. And even at Harvard Business School, where, you know, we are the elite of the elite, you know, I'm watching my students. Some of them are clearly on, you know, the terraces of beach houses. With yeah. Gorgeous views. And some of them are in with several other people with, I know, because, you know, sick relatives in tiny yeah. quarters. So, you know, we're learning a lot about COVID, you know, as we go through COVID. But the thing that worries me most, not only about COVID, but about all the technologies I write about in the book, is that they're all going to make inequality worse. Yes. Socioeconomic yeah. inequality. It's going to get exacerbated by every one of the exciting technologies out there. 
yes, they're going to change our, our sex lives and our romantic lives and our family lives, but first they're going to exacerbate inequality. And that terrifies me. So what do we do about that? Well, I think we have to look for not just community-based solutions. We need governmental involvement here. Yes. I think one of the, I don't mean to get overly political, but I think some of the things that Andrew Yang introduced into this election cycle, things like a universal basic income, we need to start talking about them. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's saved this country in the past few months has been the income supplements. Yeah. Um, we need to think really hard about things like that, not just because they're sort of the right thing to do, but I think in terms of, of sustaining this country, Yes. If we reach a point, which I believe we will, that if driverless cars become a reality and crucially driverless trucks, we're going to wipe out hundreds of thousands of jobs in this country. And they're yeah. mostly going to be male working class jobs. What yeah. do we do when all those people have no means of supporting themselves? If we want to avoid a revolution, we need to do some kind of, re of massive economic redistribution. It's actually not all that hard. Yeah. And there's a lot of, this is not, this is sort of, compassion this is not and and common sense this is not communism we're talking about here yeah. uh it is it it's about sort of creating a world that works creating jobs for people uh, who have talents who we need uh, my brother is is a lyft and uber driver and this has been hard for him and, and one of the things that was so striking to me is that he when he applied for unemployment, the systems were so impenetrable. And it seemed to me like that Lyft and Uber would have sent instructions out to every driver about how to, how to navigate the bureaucracy. It goes back, I mean, interestingly, to both what you're doing with Radical Candor and what I'm arguing in the book, is that most times we look at things like Uber and Lyft as really interesting technological breakthroughs mm -hmm. that have had these really important economic consequences. And that's all true. But they've also fundamentally changed people's lives yes. for both better and worse. Yeah. And unless you look at that, at that how the technology is ultimately going to sort of travel through to people's personal and family lives, you're going to get it wrong at sort of the macroeconomic level. Yeah. I think another thing that technology does for us, especially technologies that scale, is they make it easier to measure things. And when you can measure injustice, you can begin to fix it. So I'll, I'll tell you sort of an anecdote, a funny story. Here's how I, here's how I use technology to get married. Uh, so I was, I was working at Google, and I was meeting with Hal Varian, who is the chief economist at Google. And we were supposed to be talking about the AdSense algorithm but instead, for some reason, we got onto online dating. And he said, you know, it's so interesting, Kim. I can now measure that women disadvantage themselves at least 10 to 1 in the way they date. And I was like, do tell. And he said, you know, women look at incoming offers. And so maybe they get 10 incoming offers. And then they choose one of 10. But men go out and make the offers. So they're looking at uh, at a thousand people and maybe making 10 offers. And he said, that's a huge advantage. And it, this was like, you know, this was a revelation to me because I, that was exactly what I had done. And so I went to my computer the next morning was that was on a Friday on Saturday morning. I went and I searched every single profile of every single man 
who lived within a five mile radius of my house. And I found two that looked interesting and one is my husband. Uh, and and so thank you, Hal Varian, for that excellent <laughs> well, uh, it, dating it, advice. I mean, not surprisingly, he's right. Not surprisingly as well, maybe more surprisingly, we're getting a huge amount of data now out of all yeah. these dating sites. And you see these really interesting patterns. And not only do you see differences between men and women, as you've just pointed out, you also see really interesting community uh, uh, patterns in the same sex uh, world as well, mm-hmm. where men in general are much more open to, to swipe right, if you will, to pick lots and lots of people. Uh-huh. Women are less likely, but also particularly for men, it's mm-hmm. actually harder um, because men who are deemed attractive, both straight and, and gay men, get swiped right on a lot. Men who are deemed unattractive, actually particularly in the gay community, get no swipes. Oof. And so we're actually seeing this, and horribly, they're winding up in these sort of incel groups. Mm-hmm. Men who are deemed unattractive online have a much harder time finding romantic liaisons than they did in the pre-online world. Both gay and straight men? Both gay and straight men. Wow, that's yeah, interesting. It's, it's particularly, what, what is deemed attractive is different in the two communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in some, there is this asymmetry Mm-hmm. Because if you're in the, in the straight world, basically any woman who wants to find a man can find one. She may not like him, but she can find one <laughs> because men are not discriminating. Right. It's much harder for a man who is deemed, for whatever reasons, unattractive to find a woman online. So I was, I was talking with uh, one of my students who's this lovely, smart, charming guy. He happens to be short. Mm-hmm. And if you're a short man on Tinder... Yeah. Prospects are really, really bad. You know, it's so interesting. This, this, so this is another measurement that I thought, I'm, I'm very short, but I'm a woman, so it hasn't really hurt me. Yeah. It affects completely differently. Yeah. But, but I thought a lot, well, it hasn't hurt me in some ways. It has in other ways. But anyway, I thought that uh, I looked at the statistics again in, in heterosexual couples for uh, tall men, short, woman or the man where the man is taller and it turns out that statistically you would expect at least some couples to not conform to average but it's far less so there's something about bias that makes us want to conform to an average for no good reason like because of this there are a lot of lonely tall women and lonely short men yeah, no, it's, it's exactly. completely unnecessary. Yeah, no, and we kind of knew this anecdotally, but we have all the data now. The other thing, one of the pieces of data that terrified me or just horrified me more than anything else is women on Tinder are most attractive at the age of 19. Oh. Not even like 25, it's 19. And men are most attractive at the age of 50. <laughs> Five, zero. This is men, not... Yeah, but this is men. It's wealth and height. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, height. Matt, I mean, this when I got when I got to business school, I remember there was this joke that said, you know, your success in your career is not correlated to anything except height. That was, and that, that was like used as this joke. I'm like, that is no joke. It's no like, joke. bias is really skewing who we hire, who we promote. Like, and a stupid. I mean. 
height is not the right. No, well, and I'll tell you one other thing not about the height. Right criteria. One other thing about height that I find fascinating. So, I in for my last book and a little bit for this book, I, I spent a fair amount of time at uh, fertility clinics mm-hmm. and talking to the doctors and the banks that that help people uh, conceive. And you know, one of the most established services is sperm banking. So, sperm banking has been around since the 1970s. So, there's tons and tons of data there. And what you see for sperm is that nobody will buy sperm from a short man. Oh, God. So the average, I make it this, it's not entirely right, but it's pretty close to right. The average American man is 5'6". Mm-hmm. You cannot be a sperm donor unless you're 5'10". Are you kidding? Because nobody will buy, I mean, it's not a law. It's just nobody will buy sperm from short men. Whereas wow. if you look at the egg market, Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about the height of the woman, which in genetic, at least if you're dating, you can imagine, I mean, there's a physical relationship. Yeah. When you're buying eggs or sperm, they have no height. And it makes no difference whether you're buying short eggs or short sperm because <laughs> you're just getting half the chromosomes. But the prejudices come through, the biases come through wow. so, so strongly. So wow. nobody will buy a sperm from a short man. So we can measure this and we can see the stupidity of this. So will bias, like there's one, there's one concern that, uh, that, that bias will get worse in these, but maybe, maybe because it's easier to measure, it'll get better. Like it was, it was again, Hal Varian who prompted me to change my whole, and it was just a minute of conversation that made me change my whole, a lifetime of dating strategy. Well, uh, well, but yeah, yes and no. So, so you changed the way you use the technology. Yes. But I'm guessing you didn't change your preferences. So that, and that seems yeah. to be a little bit more hardwired, particularly if you're looking, I don't know what service you used, obviously, but, you know, when you're using things like Tinder in particular, which are very visual. Yeah. People are still responding in some ways the way they would at a bar. You yeah. know, they're sizing up. Hair color, height, yeah. you know, what the person's wearing. And I mean, you, you did tell me that you found the man is now your husband in part because of the book he was reading. Yes, it was Match.com. And it was the novel he was reading that, that, right. <laughs> that got my attention. He was reading, and this is relevant to your book. He was reading Ian McEwen. Uh, he wasn't reading uh, Machines Like Me. He was reading Atonement. But later we did read that machine. So, so talk to me a little bit about... Can we fall in love with, uh, with a machine? One of the things that I'm an obsessive writer and editor, and maybe I work too hard. And I remember one time I went home and a family member said to me, you love your computer more than you love me. And I realized that better, it's time for me to turn this thing off. But what, do we love our machines? So I, I argue pretty strongly in the book that I, I think we definitely will fall in love with machines. I would even go so far as to argue that we already have. Now, I say this as someone, as everyone in my family would attest, can barely work the remote control. So mm-hmm. I am not a techie by any stretch of the imagination. But think about, you know, your smartphone, right? Mm-hmm. We all have these things, these computers. And when I, when I teach about this, I always ask people to do the thought experiment. You know, how many of you physically have your phone on your body right now? Mm-hmm. And it's just about everybody. Yeah. How many of you woke up this morning with your phone in your bed? How many of you, you know, looked at your phone as the last thing you did last night? And so you see that, you no, know, is it sexual relationship? No. Is it a romantic relationship? No. But is it a relationship? 
I think it is. You know, I don't you, know. Is that a relationship or is that an addiction? Well, think if the continue with the thought experiment, your fault. Now, bear in mind, these are Model Ts, right? This is first generation technology. These are going to get much, much better. Yeah. My phone, I'm sure like yours, it knows all of my memories. Yes. It knows all of my favorite people. It yes. knows everywhere I've been. It knows everything I'm thinking about. So if it, if it die, you know, if I lose it, I feel bereft at, <laughs> at some level. You know, we all do. It's I mean, true. I, I, true. I always tell the story. I was having breakfast with this woman in New York. She's a high powered media executive. She's in her late seventies. So she didn't grow up with these things. And she had left it at, at home that morning. Mm-hmm. And she could not get through breakfast. She kept saying, but what if it needs me? <laughs> you know? and, and we've all felt that way. Yeah. Now, so that's one thing. And then take it into the, the other realm or one of the other realms I talk about. When, when people think about falling in love with robots, I think most of us think about robot sex, right? We go yeah. to the, you know, the sort of most titillating outer edges of it. And that will happen. But I am less interested in that. But what I find more interesting are the kinds of assistive robots, that we're starting to see, particularly in places like Japan, where there's too many old people and not enough young people to take yeah. care of them. Yeah. So people are building robotic seals, robotic puppies, and they use them in a very perfunctory way to kind of entertain folks, many of whom have dementia, in an old age home. Mm-hmm. I've, I've gone to these places and watched the, the old folks interact with the robotic seal, and it's real. I mean, I don't know yeah. that these people think the robotic seal is real. But it's but really helpful. But it's helpful. And they're reacting with it in a, in a human way. Um, MIT is building robots that have shown incredible promise in teaching autistic kids. Wow. That the autistic kids actually do better with a robot teacher than a real teacher because the robot is infinitely patient. Yes. It doesn't get upset. It never demonstrates frustration. It will just repeat something over and over and over again. And, and so I think these are the robots that will move into our lives first. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the kind of sex with robots comes later and it's always is less interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think we will, we, and again, just look at what we're doing now. We are all spending all of our lives on Zoom. So I think I'm talking to the real Kim Scott right now. <laughs> but you don't but know. I don't really know. <laughs> if you were a really good avatar, yeah. I might not know the difference. Yeah, that is really interesting, I think. And, and I mean, one of the things that I have thought a lot about since COVID is the extent to which we can use technology to form real relationships at work that are as real and as deep as they need to be for work. And the extent to which we can, because we can now get 80, 90% of the way towards in-person communication using Zoom or Google Hangouts or whatever you wanna use, Microsoft Teams, I don't wanna leave anybody out. Uh, But we can can get 80, 90% of the way there. And then we can be in person which where matters most with our most intimate relationships. Like it's really, uh, I talk in Radical Candor a lot about the importance of in-person communication. And I was talking about it in the work context, but one of the things that I have realized during quarantine is that it's actually fine 
to show up on Zoom for my work colleagues. Not that I don't love you all, my work colleagues, but it's more, it's way more important for me to show up in person for my husband and my children. Way more important. Like that really, I can't substitute. And I think that it is really interesting. Like we started off talking about the productivity hit of this period. And I have taken a productivity hit to be sure, probably on the order of 30%. But I also have gotten a parenting and a spousal gain on the order of 60%. And that's a good trade-off actually. Like maybe I need to let go of some of that desire for productivity and accept the much bigger, more important gain I'm getting in my personal life. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I also think that your productivity loss is probably less than you think it is because we're also, you know, we're not commuting. Yeah. We're taking less time to get dressed in the morning. You know, we're, I never took much time to get dressed in the morning. All right. Well, I was taking a little bit more. I got, you know, less to work with. Tired of being talked at during pre-recorded webinars? Come laugh with us live. Join us for a laugh and learn program to acquire the skills you need to practice radical candor like a boss even if you aren't one, and even if you haven't read the book. For the first time, Kim Scott's teaching a live six-week virtual course featuring our comedy-based interactive learning program, The Feedback Loop, to help you fix past and present feedback fails and avoid future frustrations. So don't miss this opportunity to practice the principles of radical candor in real time with real people. Course starts October 14th. Visit radicalcandor.com backslash feedback. That's radicalcandor.com backslash feedback. Um, one of the things I've, I've been talking about since the book came out is in some odd ways, our lives are almost going back to the pre-industrial era where yeah. everybody worked at home and the division yeah. of labor was more fluid. Yes. That there wasn't sort of one person who stayed at the home and went off to the factory job. We're almost mm-hmm. going back to that pre-industrial phase. And like everything else, it'll have good attributes and, and bad but I think what we're going to find, not just in your family or your workplace, we're seeing it in higher ed, is this sort of calculus of what parts have to be done in person. Yeah. And what we're seeing on, on college campuses, you know, early stages is, you know, kids don't want to give up eating in the dining hall. Yeah. They don't want to give up playing Frisbee on the lawn. The yeah. education, we may actually be able to do more of that online, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's really interesting. I mean, that offers... Uh, opportunity for more equality because you you could offer the educational parts to a lot more people. You could educate, Harvard could educate 10 times, 100 times the number of people that they used to be able to educate if they gave up on the idea of, if they said, okay, people who are at Harvard who are in Memphis or in Mumbai can get together and go play Frisbee, go eat right, together. No, and that's what we're doing. So one of my hats, I'm the senior associate dean of Harvard Business School Online. And I've only been in that role for a while, so I can't take credit for the work they've done. But, you know, we're teaching tens of thousands of people online. Yeah. And what we've discovered, you know, pre-COVID is once a year, we invite people to come to campus and everybody comes, you know, they form yeah. these physical relationships and they want to be on campus. They want to walk along the brick paths and, you know, play the Frisbee. But, but we are, to use the, the economic term, we're, we're sort of disintermediating the bundle. Yes. So it used to be, I mean, the model of college we have, which again is sort of a medieval model, model is you get it all at once. You get the campus and the meal halls and yeah. the education. Now COVID is forcing us to imagine unbundling that. Yeah. 
And it's really interesting. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that some colleagues of mine from Google who taught an AI, an artificial intelligence class at Stanford opened that class up to anyone who wanted to take it. So there were, I think, 400 Stanford students taking their class. And then they opened it up and they thought, you know, maybe 10,000 people would take it. I think something like 100,000 people took it. It was a huge number of people. And it turned out that the number one person at Stanford was like, not even close to the top of performers in the class, that there were these people who were not in these elite universities who were performing very well. So again, that was Sebastian Thrun, and this experience prompted him to start a company, Udacity. So I think the opportunity for equality and equality of opportunity in education and also equality of opportunity at work is there. We haven't figured out, right now, it's it's making inequality greater, but I think the opportunity for equality and for measuring bias and for measuring these these problems that are in that are so baked into our current systems is is really exciting about how machines shape our human destiny. But I no, I, I of course agree with that, but I would sort of take it one step further to say I think that's kind of the argument. If you can sort of imagine or sketch out sort of the trajectory of these technologies, mm-hmm. you say, huh, it can make things more equal or less equal. Yes. So how do we jump in ahead of that curve and, and make say, it more equal? Okay, rather than just rebundling it and pushing the price point up again, how yeah. can we create, you know, Stanford on campus, Stanford online, Stanford for everybody? Uh, but you have to think about that up front. Otherwise, yeah you know, it's not necessarily going to go in the direction you want it to. Yes, yeah. But you can imagine it driving the cost of education way down in, in ways that were impossible to conceive just No, ab- years absolutely, ago. absolutely. And I think, you know, people have been sort of imagining that actually even since the days of radio. Yeah. Universities were predicted to go away because radio, you know, would just deliver yeah. education on air. That didn't happen. No. But now COVID is really forcing this because we, we are figuring out, it's not easy, but you can deliver a really, really good quality education. Not all the pieces of it. Yeah. But some pieces you can deliver really well online. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what else have you learned about teaching online, about, about the experience of building community and, and reaching out at an emotional level to all these students, but also reaching out intellectually? Well, I think one of the things, and this is really uh, not directly connected to COVID at all, is that you can't do things well online simply by porting whatever it was you did yeah. in the classroom, you know, filming it and plunking it down online. It's a completely different skill set. Um, I, I was just thinking about the other day, and Kim, you had mentioned this to me, that, you know, in the early days of movies, you know, they didn't really know how to make a movie, so they just filmed a play. A play. Well, yes. it turns out that filming a play does not make a good movie. <laughs> I think we're in the same sort of stages now uh, and think about online education that, you know, the early MOOCs were just filming a single professor, you know, and after people got sort of over the, you know, thrill uh, issue there, it's just not that good. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to think about the pedagogy completely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like making the move from a textbook to a movie. It's a completely different shift and it costs a lot of money to do that. Yes. So, yeah. and this goes back to the equality, you know, not every university 
in fact, very few universities will be able to go online successfully. So we'll get this winnowing out. The ones who do it well will be few in number and they'll have to spend lots of money up front. And then hopefully they'll have the power to actually disseminate this education much more broadly. Yeah, it's so interesting. So when I used to give these radical candor talks, I always sort of wondered, because when I stand up to give a talk, this is a true confession, I give the same exact talk every time. It's almost like I'm pushing play in my brain. And so, and it feels, there's something about that that feels wrong to me. So I was talking to John Maeda, who uh, was the head of the Rhode Island School of Design. And he said, well, let's do this experiment. Let's just take a recording of you giving the talk and let's play the recording to an online audience. And then let's hit pause every so, let's look at the questions that come up and hit pause every so often. And so it'll be almost like you're a sportscaster talking about your own talk. Um, and that seems like really interesting. And we tried it and it didn't really work that well. No, like how, no it does Why? Well, I think part of it, and this is what goes back to, you know, what can you do online? What do you have to do for real? There, there's still a human energy and a human connection that seeing that person in the front of the room, watching them move, watching them sweat is real. And the same as you in my last book, I gave the same speech, you know, a million and a half times, but yeah. it went differently every time yeah. because, because the audience was the different. audience. There's an energy coming or not coming. And that's the part that's exciting. So, so whether you're thinking about this from you know, education perspective or workplace perspective, it, go, it goes back to the same question. What are the things that you can do virtually? You know, Mm -hmm. basic tasks, uh, practice, uh, teaching people things like Excel spreadsheets. Those are great to do online. But what are the things you have to do in person? And and I hope we don't reach a point where the excitement of having a real human being interacting with other real human beings goes away. I don't think it will. No, no. I mean, what can be delivered asynchronously and what has to be synchronous, I think, is another. But I mean, and to me the great lectures that I saw in college. And I was really lucky that, I mean, I had some amazing professors, and, but they could have been delivered over video. I really do. Like, in fact, one of, the, one of the lectures that most impacted my life was from the great lecture series. I heard, and I, it was like, it was a cassette tape, actually. It was that long ago. Uh, and I listened to it while I was on a Stairmaster and it was, it was a psychology lecture and it was, a, it was about Skinner's box. And it like freed me in a way that very few things have ever. So I think there is an opportunity to have a library of great lectures and then build community around those lectures and conversation. I mean, in, in a sense, that's what happened in college, right? You go to the right, lecture and, and then you go to the precept. Right. Well, pre-COVID, when I was back at, at Barnard, we built a new educational building. And what we built in, and lots of people are doing this, are these so-called flipped classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the basic pedagogical idea of the flipped classroom is that the students listen to the lectures ahead of class, particularly mm-hmm. in the sciences. And then they come into class and they work through problems in small groups and they do bench experiments. And so, you, you know, it makes no sense or makes little sense to sit in a class and listen to a lecture. That's yeah. the part you can do at home on the Stairmaster. Yeah. But, you know, you can't do a chemistry experiment on the no. Stairmaster. At least not yet. Yeah. So that's the part that you want to be, be happening in, in person. Yeah. And you can't have a conversation about Skinner's box. No, you know, while you're on the stair, you got to sit and look at people and talk. And that has to be that has to be synchronous. You know, it's it's interesting. I first met Jason when 
Candor Inc., the first company I had started, failed. So the the initial idea that I had after I wrote the book, Radical Candor, was we can build an app that will help people change their behavior and develop a habit of Radical Candor. Because I think part of what's hard about Radical Candor is that we're trained from a young age, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And at a certain point, I realized if the purpose of Radical Candor is to teach people to put their phones in their pocket and look each other in the eye, even if it's over Zoom, and have a real conversation, then an app was a value-subtracting round trip. So that was an example of, of a machine that didn't work. And one of the things I think the, the team, Jason and, and Brandy and Amy and I have been wrestling with is how can we, in addition to the talks and workshops, like how can we begin to use technology to help people change their behavior? One of the most interesting conversations I had was with Angela Duckworth, who wrote Grit. She said, you know, you need emotion. And that is possible to deliver. I mean, that's what movies deliver. That's what books deliver. And that's also what in-person conversations. But you need some sort of emotional hook in. You need a framework that's very simple. Uh, And then you need people to tie that into their real lives and then to change something, to do something with this information and and to do it on a regular basis. Right. And it's that the information can be conveyed asynchronously, Mm -hmm. but for doing something and the testing ideas, that's really hard to do, at least given our current technologies. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So can we go back to, can we go back to IDF? Here at the end. So one of the things that I found that almost knocked me off course in my career several times when I was younger was this sort of abstract, what I call fertility panic. There are so many messages that come at people saying, you must have children before you're, I don't know what, 32? I don't know what the number, it's way lower than is necessary. And The truth is, now that I'm an old lady of 52, I I don't know anyone who really wanted kids who didn't ultimately figure out a way to have children in their life. But I know so many people who panicked and married the wrong person and had children with somebody who they didn't necessarily want to be tied to for the rest of their lives because of this fertility panic message. So this was something, and I know people who who got off track in their careers because of fertility panic. Um, So talk to me about fertility. Yeah, so I have a slightly different perspective on that. So my public service announcement that I make regularly Mm -hmm. is that mother nature is not fair. Yeah. So women's fertility does fall off a cliff at 35. And that's not a political statement. That's just a biological statement. Sort of mother nature or God or whoever you like really wanted women to produce babies between like 19 and 23. That's when we're most fertile. Mm -hmm. Now, that definitely doesn't mean that you can't have children later. Definitely doesn't mean that children are the right things for everybody. But I always feel like that I just want young women to know that that's just what the science tells us. And, and again, it ties back to, to inequality. So there are some women who, who can be fertile into their 40s. Most can't, but there's some who can. It's very hard to predict ahead of time. And then if you're, if you're not one of those lucky few and you want to have babies in your late 30s and 40s, IVF is a godsend, but it's expensive. Yes. And so I just feel again, like the public service announcement is, you know, you're biologically supposed to do it now. 
However, it goes back to what I said earlier. For me, the most important thing is choices. So for some women, having babies early is the right thing to do. You know, I had my first kid really young. And I mean, we all rationalize everything. You know, for me, that worked out beautifully. My kids are all grown. And now I have hopefully a lot of years of productivity sort of towards the latter part of my career. I don't think there's one way to do it. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, there's a whole buffet of ways that people can do it. And we need to validate all of those. Make sure people have the facts. Yes. And this isn't my, you know, my, my other sort of pitch. IVF should be part of healthcare. I mean, first of all, we should have more and better healthcare in this country. Yes. Yeah. But, but IVF up until, you know, your mid forties, it, it's just healthcare. Yeah. And if you could, if you could just make it easier for people to afford to be able to conceive later in life, then I think you would take away some of that panic. So anything yeah. we do can get rid of the panic is definitely yeah. the, the panic is never is never helpful. I mean, of That's course, really good. Of course, you know we've got people who don't have health care at all, and we've got people whose health care won't cover a CAT scan when they really need it. So even as a beneficiary of IVF, yes, it, it should be. I just think that for me, at least, I had I had a lot of issues to work out. <laughs> it was important for me to work out those issues before I had children, and then dump them on the kids. Uh, and that was <laughs> that was way more important than having kids uh, at you know, at, at 22. Yeah. But I think again, that goes to the point there's, you know, there's no one cookie cutter here. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so much of it is just the luck. Um, you know, when you meet the right person, if you want to parent with another person, you know, and so sometimes I, I also hear from women on the flip side, it's from men sometimes too, which is, I think I've met the love of my life, but I'm so young. You know, yeah. shouldn't I go out and wait? And my, my advice generally no. is, no, <laughs> no you know, it feels right, go for it. So I yeah. think, you know, anything that pushes individuals, we all have our warts and our troubles and whatever we have to work through. Anything that pushes individuals to believe there's one single way to do this family thing. Yeah. That's what I'm completely against. Yes, I agree. It goes back to this average thing. Just because on average in a heterosexual couple, the man is taller than the woman doesn't mean that there need to be a lot of unnecessarily lonely. You know, it doesn't mean you can't defy the average. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's kind of a silly thing, right? Yeah. Well, Deb, such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. I could talk all day. Thank you so much. Uh, And make sure you buy work, mate, Mary Love, How Machines Shape Our Destiny. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.